All right, hello, friends. Uh, it's Chapo coming at you. Uh, me, Matt, and Felix, as usual. But uh, joining us today is David Dayan of the American Prospect. David, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me on. Um, uh, David, I want to talk. To, we're, uh, I want to mostly talk to you about um, an article that you have up now, based on uh, leaked recordings of a uh, captive audience um, anti-union meetings at the uh, the No Evil Foods Company. And would it shock you to believe that that company uh, is, you know, perhaps some evil? Should, some evil to quite, quite uh, excuse a lot of me. Evil. I find that hard to believe that they could be charged by the Better Business Bureau for false advertising <laughs> if they had even one yeah. percent of evil in there. That's right. Would be libel. Whenever there's a company that's called like you know we're doing some freaking good incorporated, it's like oh they like um, they lock people in a warehouse and make <laughs> them listen to the co-founder like do ukulele covers of NWA songs. <laughs> But that was, oh, they like they like hired Israelis to f- follow home employees. Google had that as their fucking early slogan, "Don't be evil." And now they're yeah. growing lab fucking uh, uh, precogs for Minority Report in the in their sub basements. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're not doing evil from the years 2000 to 2007, you know you have no heart. If you are not doing evil. From the years 2008 to present, you have no brain. That's true. You got to be doing evil. You have no brain that was grown in a vat. I just think this story is going to be really problematic for my next investigation on the we don't chop up children in a wood chipper (laughs) drums. They make drums, actually. Oh, dear. Um, uh, but David, before we get into that, I, I, I do want to I do want to ask you about this the uh, the eviction moratorium and this um, I guess extension of it that just happened. Um, we, we talked about this show at the beginning of the week, but I'm I know you've been covering this a lot, and I just want I was hoping you could just clarify for us an issue that I'm still sort of confused about. Um, could could you explain like exactly the circumstances mm-hmm. under which the eviction moratorium was initially allowed to expire, and how it related to a a, a potential Kavanaugh state ruling? A statement he gave on a potential ruling and like just like like what were those specifics regarding like how the how the Biden White House um, like initially faced this eviction moratorium uh, expiring? Sure. So uh, I think there are two issues at play, but we'll talk about yours first. So um, the eviction moratorium was first the statute that expired, I believe, in September of 2020. And then the Trump administration actually figured out this way to extend it through the CDC by themselves. And they did that, uh, and I think it was extended a couple times, uh, uh, the last time right to the beginning of the Biden presidency, like January 31st, 10 days after he was inaugurated. And the Biden administration, rather than changing what is actually kind of a leaky moratorium, I mean, it really has to do with non-payment of rent. People can be evicted for any other reason, um, and they are. Uh, there have been plenty of evictions that have gone on during the eviction moratorium, quote unquote. Um, but the Biden administration didn't change it. They just extended that CDC order. And the last time that they extended it, they extended it from the end of June to the end of July. And they made very clear at that point that that would be the last extension. They, 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 they said, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to do this again. And that was a point at which it looked like the pandemic was kind of wrapping up. Um, separately with that, there were landlord uh, organizations that had filed suit claiming 
that the eviction moratorium was unconstitutional. And that those cases went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court actually ruled in a 5-4 ruling to allow the eviction moratorium to continue. When people are talking about Brett Kavanaugh's opinion, it was a concurring opinion, and the legal term is dicta, but uh, really what that means is that he said, yes, I'm going along with this, but here's a piece of paper that says, if you try this again, I'll probably vote against it. Uh, It's not binding. It has no force of law. Uh, It's just almost a footnote that says, uh, I don't think this is, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to allow this to go forward because, what he said was, because the Biden administration has said this would be the last time, I'm just going to allow this to go forward. And, uh, but if you try to extend it again, I'm going to vote against it. That, that's what he said. Now, obviously, those circumstances were very different. At the time that, that Kavanaugh wrote that opinion, there were, I think, 12,000 COVID cases per day, and now there are something like 80,000 COVID cases per day. So uh, there, there, there's a lot uh, that's going on that's, that's quite a bit different that could uh, work in the favor of the CDC. But I expect that, uh, I know there already have been the beginnings of lawsuits against this latest extension, which uh, the CDC belatedly did. And uh, my expectation is that we'll get to the Supreme Court fairly rapidly. And, uh, you know, we'll see what Kavanaugh does. And he probably is going to block it uh, and vote with the, the minority in the previous case. And at that point, we'll, we'll, uh, who knows what, what's going to happen. Well, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take issue with something you said right off the bat. Um, okay. You said you, you use the term landlord. Um, that is not the preferred nomenclature. It is oh, mom and pop housing providers. That's what we're <laughs> calling them now. Yeah. But the real problem here is not an eviction moratorium problem. It's a rental assistance problem. Uh, the, the Right to the City Alliance was a pretty good organizing group, has estimated there's about $21 billion in rental debt out there in the country. Uh, Congress has appropriated $46.5 billion in rental assistance. There's much more appropriated than there is rental debt that exists. The pro- so, so this shouldn't be a problem. There should be no back rent in America. The reason that there is, is that it's a dog shit program. That, that they, they have only, in the first six months of its existence, sent out $3 billion out of this $46 billion, about 6%. At that rate, they would uh, fully pay out their allotment sometime in 2028. And, uh, you know, that obviously is completely insufficient. And it's a problem of design at the very beginning and also implementation. Uh, the, the design devolved it to the states and cities to figure out how to get out this money which created hundreds of brand new organizations that, that had to you know, come up with forms that, that uh, people had to fill out to, to get this rental assistance. Uh, the paperwork burden is very high on, on families uh, who are seeking this assistance. Landlords can veto the money uh, <laughs> that, that, that uh, 
is given to them if if they if they so choose. That's actually in so the statute. So, so land, landlords can say no to the money that they like the, to cover their losses that they're not making in rent. The back rent. They can say no to the money that would they would be given by this program just to like to evict someone essentially. Yeah, it's kind of complicated. They can veto it if it comes from what they call the grantee, which is the local agency. At that point, the grantee can give the money directly to the to the tenant, and the tenant can pay out the back rent, but that's a cumbersome process. And the reason that a landlord would want to veto is that they would say, hey, there's the moratorium's going to expire. Rents have been soaring. I can kick these guys out and bring new people in at a much higher rental rate and and make more money. And sure enough, that's what's been happening. There, there have been a lot of uh, people, uh, land landlords, I'm or, or you know, non-binary, whatever, uh, who have uh, uh, said that they would not uh, take the money, and uh, so so it's just a terribly designed program that uh, there's not a lot of education, there's not a lot of funding for people to help uh, work, navigate tenants through the system. Uh, they don't really know about it. Uh, the Treasury Department has said they've made changes to the program, but they haven't informed these hundreds of different entities that there are changes going on. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible program. And it's it's part of a larger issue, right, of how bad we are at actually distributing relief to particularly to vulnerable to poor populations, uh, uh, you know, we, we aren't very good at actually giving them the relief to begin with, but what we're really bad at is actually implementing this stuff once it comes out. Yeah, I mean, this is how you've described this program. It could be you just switch a few nouns out and it could be the same thing that happened with a billion other things that we've done in the past, you know, we'll say 20 years. Right. I, I, the issue with this, with this type of program that's like targeting those most in need is that the path we've been on, you know, how we run this economy, how people get slotted into things, the people who need this the most are kind of like not participating in what we have going on. You know, there's we have a tiered system where if you're above a certain amount, you are, you know, you are a visible person. You're not one of the loathed invisible people, but you supposedly have it together enough to call your insurance company when there is a change to Obamacare. Mm -hmm. You can, mm -hmm. you know, if you even lose your job, you kind of, you know how to work this, like, just bizarre phone banking system to contact whoever you need to contact with UI, even though that's no guarantee. You are in part of the this world, this overworld enough that you can, you know, you have a better chance of getting what you need to get. For people who like actually need rental assistance, we have decided that they're not part of the same world that we are. They're the invisible people. They're the people driving the fucking Ubers, wiping down the aisles at CVS, the people that like other people do not like thinking about. And they have been completely cut out of any world like this. And right. even if you even if you like give them a phone number to call, it, it's like they who knows if they're going to be able to get to the type of person that they need to get to, to even get any type of help. I think that's absolutely right. But the larger issue is that they have to do this work at all. 
I mean, we have yes. devalued government so much and, and shrunk its size that we've turned benefit recipients into little bureaucrats that, is, that are doing yeah. the work of the government for them. And we have to fill out forms and we have to make calls and we have to know various aspects of these systems. And there's no reason for it. These, these programs can be much, much simpler to actually get, but it's the combination of not making them universal so that there's all kinds of income tests and, and means tests and things that, that, that require a big paperwork burden. And it's not making them federal so that they are put into the state and local capacity, which is very cash-strapped, which just throws more burdens onto the individual. Yeah. I mean, that is that has been the design for the past 40 years, is to anything from, yeah, what typically would be a civil servant whose job was to distribute welfare, see, you know, see who needs it, see how it's going to get to them, etc. That is now on the individual. Usually it's on an individual who don't speak the middle class language of like working a phone bank all the time. Right. Uh, but they shouldn't even have to. Like, even, they shouldn't right, have to. They should not have to at all. And it's, I mean, it's the same thing. That's kind of how people say, oh, there's no homeless policy. No, we've decided what our homeless policy is. It's that everyone who walks around a major urban center is for, you know, two minutes every day, they're sort of like a distant social worker. <laughs> right, right. Their job is to like either just completely ignore whatever, like completely abandoned, despised human they see or like give them five dollars. Everyone gets to be a social worker just every the time cops. they walk down. Yeah. Right. No, everyone is sort of deputized in whatever problem it is. And then when it's all done, when, you know, a very small sliver of people that actually needed the help got it, when, you know, things keep getting worse in other ways, you can go, well, we did this whole program. What are you talking about? We, we, we did something. Exactly. And, and it, there's this spectacle of all of these politicians who are, uh, whether on the Senate floor or even Biden has done this, chiding these state and local governments for not being able to get this money out. When the problem, the original problem is the bill that they signed and the bill that they, they directed that created this mess, that, that devolved it down. I mean, it, and, and what this essentially is, is uh, and I've written about this and Annie Lowry just recently had a piece in the, uh, in the Atlantic, it's a tax. We put a tax, only the tax is on people's time. We put a tax on people to go through all of these hoops that they have to jump, go through all of these hassles to fill out things and spend hours and hours in order to get their benefits. And that, that is a real tax and we should see it that way. And we should, we should, you know, we should, we should use the exact same anti-tax rhetoric to try to get rid of it. Um, are you, aware, mm -hmm. I mean, like in, in terms of the, specifically the problems with this rental assistance program, as you've described them, um, are you aware of any um, anyone in elected office right now who is aware of this issue and is working on it in any way? <laughs> well, I mean, I uh, the the Progressive Caucus after the moratorium was announced had this press conference, and I went to the press conference and I said, "Well, yes, yeah, sixty day extension is all well and good, but this stuff is going to be paid out for years and years under the current uh, trajectory." And so, what are what are you going to do about that? And Pramila Jayapal is the head of the caucus, and I quoted her a little bit in my recent piece, said, you know, I mean, normally what we would do is we would create programs where the, the benefits go directly to the individual. 
but it was kind of a half answer, and and I don't know that a whole lot's going to come of it. Certainly, if if they want to put into law a moratorium for the duration of the pandemic, they should combine that with making this simpler, uh, making this easier to use. I've heard since from some people at the local level who have designed systems that are a little bit better, uh, that have you know one page to fill out rather than 20 or, or, or far fewer uh, uh, document requests or things like that. But that should be what we strive for. And, and I wish more policymakers uh, did. I mean, just, just uh, uh, finally, on in terms of policymakers, I'm wondering um, uh, what you. I mean, like, where, where, we, how would you rank um, Cory Bush's uh, protests in front of the Capitol, like camping out, um, trying to get like you know people to come back from their vacation? How, like, how would you rate her efforts and and those of other politicians in, uh, you know, um, making this a visible issue and then like leading to this latest CDC um, extension of the moratorium? Well, I mean, Cory Bush, without what she did, uh, they would probably have tried to make this go away. Um, so, I mean, I think what Bush did absolutely was integral to getting a 60 day extension. Now, whether that buys enough time for, uh, 94% of this money to actually get out the door, it's like a a warped version of Brewster's millions where you you have to (laughs) to spend billions of dollars in a very short period of time. Um, uh, whether this, you know, the 60 day extension actually does that. I, I, I don't think it will. I mean, I don't see, uh, some, some come to Jesus moment here where everybody figures out how to give people money. Uh, but it's, it's absurd that it's this hard, right? It's absurd. And, and it speaks to the need for broader structural changes, uh, whether it's something like a UBI system that gets set up or something like, uh, what is called the Fed account. It's uh, also part of, of the postal banking idea where everybody gets an account from the Federal Reserve. Everybody gets a bank account. And so it's super easy if you have benefit delivery uh, to actually give it to that person because they can access their bank account, their Fed account. It would just um, be like direct deposit, right? It would yeah, just exactly. show up in your account. And like you exactly. wouldn't have to even open it the would... account because if you're, you know you have a social security number, it's right. just there. And, and in the... And in the case of uh, something like the stimulus checks, you wouldn't even have to, you know, you wouldn't have to fill out anything on the front end. Uh, it would just show up in your bank account. Um, so uh, there are a lot of ways to streamline this stuff, uh, but it starts from a mindset, the mindset of we don't care if seven undeserving, quote unquote, people access this benefit. We're not going to make it complicated for everybody to prevent those seven people from getting it right uh that that's the mindset that we have to take up and i have i'm 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 very uh, pessimistic that that will become the dominant mindset in congress well i mean it's well it's a very effective i mean the way it's deployed it's a very effective counter argument against sort of like broad broad based like uh you know uh just direct uh, transfers of money to people or like even things like student loan uh student loan forgiveness or things like that Mm -hmm. it's a very Mm -hmm. A very effective tactic, and I guess um, I was just like I was just sort of thinking as you were talking, like overall about the ways in which these systems are sort of designed to be as baffling and um, inaccessible as possible to the people who need them. Such though that like you know when when you when you explain to people or like voters or you're trying to uh, you know get elected or promote a, a policy that that you think would help, I mean people don't believe that it would work 
or that it's possible. And I, I just was right. sort of thinking along the same lines of like a lot of people who are who have still not gotten a COVID vaccine. A lot of it may be due to the fact that when you tell people it's free, they don't even believe it. And they I, think if they absolutely. show up and get it, they're going to get like some huge bill from their insurance company for getting that shot. Absolutely. Because they've been conditioned by the last 40 years. They, they, they know that it's nothing's free and everything's a pain in the ass. And so, of course, they think that. And so this is this should be part of the overall project. Uh, if if progressives and Democrats and whoever is in office thinks that they want to make government seem like it's on the side of people again. The, one of the best ways to do that is to make government not a, a giant pain, which is what it is whenever you need to add, whenever you need it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you talked about um, this is the way we've been uh, conditioned over the last 40 years. And I think this is a this is a good transition into the piece that you have up this week at the American Prospect, which is based on, uh, like I said, these uh, leaked recordings from a series of uh, captive audience anti-union meetings at this uh, at the at the um, like the 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 factory of this um, sort of vegan meat company called uh, No Evil Foods. And uh, in it, you write of of these these captive audience tactics and pitches um you i mean you describe how like these are these have been used by management and they are very effective but they represent in your words a mass psychological experiment over the last 40 years like what is that experiment and how does it work in these captive pitch meetings like how like how is this tactic so effective yeah they they've really honed it I mean, th- this is uh, something that has taken decades. There was a book that came out called Inf- Confessions, of an Ant- uh, Confessions of a Union Buster uh, that came out, I think, in the 90s and was talking about these tactics. And they have just continued from there. Um, and the main sort of over- overriding frame of this is that employers and employees are a happy family. Like, you know, we know you guys, we work with you. You guys are, 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 our team. We, uh, you know, we put the team together and this union, this, this outside force is going to come in and ruin our good time. It's, it's going to come in from the outside and divide us. And everything sort of fits into that frame. And now these meetings uh, and I listened to hours and hours of tapes of, of these meetings. They're mandatory. Uh, no union organizers, no outside uh, uh, people can be at them. It's only employees. Uh, they uh, are usually an hour long, if not more. Uh, they are really lectures from management uh, about what, uh, you know, what unions are really like. Um, and, uh, they are, are, it's a very honed presentation, uh, that, that tells you over and over again that, uh, the union would disrupt this relationship that you have. And, uh, you know, obviously the intimation is, uh, if you bring this union in, uh, you're, you're going to lose your benefits. You're going to lose what you have. Uh, there's no guarantee you'll get anything better. Uh, you, you, we could lose the company, uh, and, and, and it would just be a very divisive situation and almost the practice of this, these meetings, the fact that you're, you're, you're pushed into this space, uh, and, uh, you're, you're creating this tense situation between workers and management and sometimes between workers and workers, 
like the workers who take the side of management, uh, it's almost it, it almost is like form following function that these the, the, the tensions that are built can only be released by getting rid of the union. Like the union was this toxic force that created all this toxicity in the workplace. And the only way to stop that is to vote them down and then everything will be relieved. A union is not a charity, it's not a club, and it's not part of the government. It's a business, a business that has to take in money to survive, but it doesn't have any products to sell. All it has is memberships to sell. A union's only source of income is the money they charge members. Money for initiation, and dues, and fines, and assessments, you get the picture. So it's pretty obvious that the fewer members their business has, the less money they collect. The union's only alternative is to get more people to pay their hard-earned money to them in dues every month. And that's becoming more and more of a problem for unions every day. Um, so like, I want to go through, like, I mean, just there, there, there's a number of, uh, like I said, tactics here or arguments that are mustered that uh, come up in your article. And the, and the first one I want to talk about is the way in which, and like, it's also it should be noted that um, no evil foods in, in this circumstance was, uh, it did this with the assistance of a firm called... Constant, uh, Constangi, Brooks, Smith, and Profet. A, it's a, it's a labor law firm that uh, specializes in union avoidance campaigns. Yes, um, and, and like, one of so my like, favorite anecdotes of that is that one of the lawyers from Constangi, on the day of the election, was rocking around this vegan meat facility with a leather handbag, <laughs> like a, like a Louis Vuitton handbag, touting. Um, uh, how how great it was that they well, busted the union. I that's mean, it's an example just a, of uh, that's doing evil according to the uh, <laughs> management's uh, principles here. But right. um, uh, the, the the first one that I noticed is the way in which at these meetings, um, you, ha- you they they depict unions as sort of corrupt, greedy businesses, and in effect, right. they t- I, I think it's so it's it's so brilliant. I mean, it's evil, but it's brilliant because <laughs> it in effect. It takes what people already know or suspect about their bosses and corporations in general, and they just say unions are that. Unions right. are big business, and here's the high salaries of the of you know what the, the head of the union makes a year. Um, you know, here are all their gener- generous benefits and perks. Oh, here's a party they threw at a, a hotel in Las Vegas. Oh, they're playing golf on the weekends. It's like like that, that's where your money, that's where your dues are going to these these greedy, um, corrupt union leaders. But like it's right. like I said, it's brilliant because people already suspect that about you know, like, you know, everyone involved in business, but it's just like, this, right. it's this projection where you go, Oh no, it's, it's the union. Like, like that, right. that's what you're fearing here. I mean, like, like the, you know, this law firm is not delineating um, all the perks that they, that they get at this like law firm to do this right. kind of work or what the, you know, what the partners right. at that, at their firm, the parties that they go to or golf trips that they take. Yeah, it's, it's, it is insidious. And uh, there are a couple things associated with that. First of all, they talk about these dues in the aggregate. So they talk about millions and millions of dollars that uh, the United Food and Commercial Workers, the UFCW in this case, uh, receive. But they're, you know, that's, that's from every one of their two million members. Uh, they very rarely, almost never talk about how much it would actually cost the individual worker uh, in dues. And the answer is like 10 bucks. A, a paycheck, uh, if that, I mean, that would be like sort of the most amount. Uh, and they almost never break that out. So they just say, yes, these dues and, and you might be able to have to pay dues even if you drop the union, which is not really true. 
Uh, and uh, it's it's about as much. I mean, across all the union locals, it's something like more like five bucks a, a, a check for a, like a biweekly check, which is the equivalent of like the cost of one package of No Evil Foods Italian sausage per week <laughs> to to to, yeah. to get this uh, these protections. Um, so so that's the first thing. The second thing is I and I think this is why. There are two reasons why I think this was particularly effective in this case. One, you had a group of people who largely came out of retail jobs, non-union jobs, who didn't have a lot of uh, uh, just a lot of uh, uh, experience with unions in general. So the, it really was kind of a blank slate for a lot of these employees. And so who was filling in the blanks? It was management. Sorry, another tactic is comparing paying dues to, quote, a shitty gym membership you want to get out of. The stipulations are insane. And also, like, um, uh, you know, underneath all this is that this, the, the factory, the shop that they were attempting to be uh, organized, is in North Carolina, which is a right-to-work state, which means that you can get out of paying dues, like, at any time, right? Right. That's absolutely right. And, and I, I think that plays into it as well, the fact that it was in the southeast in a state that doesn't have a, a, a heavy union membership. There, there really isn't anything to point to if you're a worker to, to be like, well, what is a union really like? So, so management gets to fill in those blanks. And then the other part of this is that the, the whole vibe of, of no evil foods, like there's a picture of the guy who's the CEO and he's in like a black hoodie and he's got a black hat on. that's a little bit of skew and the beard and everything. And he's like, he's like a guy who was definitely into Papa Roach when they came out. <laughs> um, uh, he, he's, they, they, they cultivated this vibe that they are sort of on the same level as the workers, you know, say, cursing during these things, a very unprofessional seeming kind of presentation, uh, just sort of being one of the gang. Right. Uh, and so and, and using this by saying, hey, in theory, we agree with unions and we're we're you know, we love we love the idea of sticking it to the man, sticking it to, uh, uh, you know, and having having workers be uh, uh, use their collective voice. It's just not right for us. When we looked into it more, we found out it doesn't reach it doesn't meet our values. Uh, so that, I think, was particularly effective for for this particular workplace because of the vibe that they sort of presented. Yeah, that that's what I've seen uh, whenever there's sort of like a progressive branded company. Their usual way that they try to defeat this through management side messaging is to talk about unionization like it's polyamory. <laughs> like it's like, well, you know, we're not against it. And like maybe one day we can do it. I just don't think it's like right for us. I want to open up the, the relationship right now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think I think that's right. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, to your point, and like especially at these, you know, sort of progressively branded companies, like e even if it's a workforce that is um, doesn't have a lot of familiarity with unions or the idea of collective bargaining, I think most people have a very good uh, bullshit detector for things that are like uh, too heavy-handed. And as you said, like a, a, a very uh, like they're they're very careful to just be like, okay, like first things. I just want to make clear. We are not engaging in anti-union propaganda right now, <laughs> and they just right. make it seem like it's we're having a conversation here. And I, there's another quote from the piece, um, just like along the lines of this idea that um, the company is a family. You know, right. um, it says, 
I don't want to sit across the table from, from you. I want you all to sit next to me. I don't want your individual <laughs> right. voices to be silenced. And it's just like, so it's right. about, yes, once again, it's about individual voices and expression and this idea yes. that like there is, no lab, there is no labor and management. There is no table of which two sides are sitting across to negotiate. You're all sitting next to each other. And it it's completely subverts the whole idea of, of a union as being the reflection of this collective voice where the workers figure out what it is they want out of the relationship and then they go to management. It's very much seen as here, there's some bureaucrat, some fat cat sitting off uh, somewhere else in the state and they come in and they dictate what they're going to want uh, out, of, out of No Evil Foods as if there would be no input from the workers into the union's demands. I mean, it, it's really very subversive the way that they 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 put it together and uh and and you know that that's that's an interesting part of this this whole thing but i i think the more insidious part is and and this was largely reflected in the guy's final speech uh mike woliansky is the ceo of noble foods um in his final speech he essentially said that if you bring this union in the investors are all going to pull out and there won't be a company anymore. And you're not allowed to say, I will shut down this company if you try to unionize. But they get around that by saying it wouldn't be their decision. It would be the decision of their investors. Uh, and they can't affect that decision in any way. Uh, similar to that is how they say that, you know, at the bargaining table, everything starts at zero. You know, once we go into bargaining, uh, anything that you have now, the vacation days we give you, the, the health care benefits that we give you right now, uh, that could all go away. Uh, I can't tell you what's going to happen in in uh, a negotiation, which, of course, is is, you know, superficially true. You can't say that X, Y, Z is going to happen as a result of unionization. But you probably have a much better shot if it's not just dictated by the, the management uh, and and union uh, the union has the ability to negotiate that. So uh, it, it 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 was just incredibly uh, a disingenuous uh, kind of rendering of this. I mean, I mean, like in talking about this, like the, whether it's the no evil foods example specifically, or if you're talking about the the Amazon warehouse in in, in mm -hmm. Bessemer, I mean, I think people um, they underestimate like you know in like when you know getting excited about or like like hoping for some sort of union action and businesses like these they underestimate like just how much the deck is weighted in favor of management but i think they also yeah. overestimate the enthusiasm of individual workers for something like a union when the, the the jobs that they do have are better than the average given the community like you mentioned that no evil foods is uh you know it's they right. pay about 1350 an hour which is like for around for the area of Asheville, North Carolina is like technically a living wage. And it seems like, you know, especially if you have by comparison, what is like a pretty good job that has some benefits, um, why it would be attractive to like why or why the message of like, hey, this company is a family. It's not it's not it's not like you're it's not like you're it's not, it's not like old business or it's not like your mom and dad's company. Like this is different. Right. We're working together. We're trying to build something new here. Like, so why risk that? And like, you know, with going into these like older models, yeah. I can understand. I understand why that is such an like a an appealing and like convincing message yeah. to workers and considering unionizing. However, I mean, but the, the, the problem is like the example of what happens when like, for instance, in No Evil Foods, when COVID happens and then the company uh, has to tighten their belt. 
Right, right. I mean, I think the point there is that, you know, for a certain class of worker, they have just been led to believe that work is just an unendurable amount of suffering, that it's, it's just a terrible job. And so if you just give a little bit of daylight, uh, you're, you're going to make it look like this, this wondrous situation, and even, even if it isn't. And uh, the, the idea that you could lose that becomes very powerful. Uh, the, the, the whole idea that you can lose what you have. Right. Um, but yes, uh, what, what you give up in that exchange by saying, yes, I have this little bit and I'm going to hang on to it and I'm not going to risk it by going into unionization. Yeah. I mean, uh, after COVID, uh, they, they, and, and this, this factory worked in very tight quarters. Uh, they, they, you know, had no real opportunity to socially distance or anything like that. And so the workers were given uh, three choices, uh, the, and they had to make it within 24 hours. Uh, the first choice was if they wanted to quit, they could quit with three weeks severance, but they would have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. They couldn't work in the food industry for another year. They a would non-compete have to never talk to the, Jesus Christ. A non-compete. They had to refrain from talking to the press. And they had to absolve the company of violations of labor laws, like the NLRA or the Family Medical Leave Act. They would have to just say, we won't charge you in in any case for that. The second option was they could quit and not sign that NDA and get nothing, uh, no severance. And, And then maybe when COVID ended, they could come back. And then the third option was they could stay and maybe there would be a hazard pay increase months down the road, but they would have to have perfect attendance for the next 90 days. And it's probably a situation where like, if you're a minute late, it's no longer perfect uh, in order to qualify for that benefit. And uh, so you had this kind of interesting situation where there still were some organizers, they lost the election by a pretty wide margin, but there were still some organizers there. And they said, this is bullshit. And they, uh, they, they circulated a petition, which most of the workers signed saying, you know, we we don't want to have this 90 days of perfect attendance policy before being able to reach, uh, receive hazard pay. And there was like this spirit of collective bargaining going on and no evil foods for a minute relented and said, okay, we'll give you a higher raise and we'll give it to you immediately. But what they did was they fired all the organizers who organized that petition and they found ridiculous excuses to, to fire them. One being that this one woman came in with shorts that were too short and violated their dress code. So uh, it turns out that, that that woman and another one of these workers who was fired uh, sues under the National Labor Relations Act and they get a settlement of like 40,000 bucks. Uh, so they, they did, you know, violate the retaliation clause, but then what happens, and this just happened like a month or two ago, is that no evil foods outsourced their entire production. They fired all the workers, gave them no notice, uh, gave them, got rid of their healthcare immediately, uh, uh, all their other benefits. And all they gave them was a flyer for a job fair. Uh, in in the Asheville, North Carolina area. So in a way, this was sort of the perfect example of 
what you what you lose, what you give up when you don't have a union, because all of these things from from COVID on down and this the election was right before COVID hit. It was like February 2020. So everything that happened after they voted down the union were things that could have been easily avoided if they actually had a union. Um, you, you mentioned one of the like the the sort of pro union employees. Uh, it's a woman named uh, Megan Sullivan, and you give her an, like an example of her in these recordings as being one of the only people, um, like you know, individually taking it upon herself to sort of counter the uh, the the pitch that they were receiving this propaganda message, which is a very difficult thing to do in a situation like that. And there's just a one part of the recording that you quote where. Um, uh, uh, Megan Sullivan asked McPeak, who's one of the guys giving these uh, presentations, says, um, speaking of like um, an, LR, an NLRB claim against the union. So there were a bunch of cases where uh, the management would talk about uh, individuals suing or, or, or filing a claim at the NLRB against uh, the union, against the USCW. Uh, and they would never give the outcome of the case. They would just say, yeah, see, uh, uh, you know, UFCW is getting complaints all the time. It doesn't say whether they're true complaints, whether they were settled, whether they were, you know, they led to anything. Um, they just kept doing this over and over again. And it was just only giving half the story. And so Sullivan gets fed up with this. And they they mentioned one case of this worker uh, at a shop and stop and shop. Uh, who was on strike, and uh, this this worker crossed crossed the picket lines, and uh, uh, you know the 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 guy filed an NRA NLRB claim claiming that he was subject to harassment and slurs and 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 uh, you know was it was a very negative situation. So uh, Megan Sullivan speaks up and says, "Well, what was the result? What happened to that guy?" Uh, and McPeak goes, uh, McPeak is the, uh, vice president of engineering, uh, who was leading this discussion. And he says, I have, I don't have any idea. You can, you can go to the website, you figure it out. And she says, I did. And the guy got a settlement. He got all his dues paid back and, and they have posters on the workplace saying that you don't, you're able to cross the picket line. You won't lose your job as a result. And he goes, well, if you knew the ruling, why won't why are you asking me any questions? And he goes, well, you're not telling us what the answers are to to these these specific situations. So that just happened over and over and over again. And McPeak's reply uh, when she said she says, "Why are you asking me the question?" He goes, "Because you're not telling us." And then McPeak replies to that, "Why are you being hostile? Why are you being hostile?" <laughs> and you know, like that, this gets to like the, like the last kind of tactic I wanted to talk about that 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 is on display here is the, is the depiction of that. Look, yeah, yeah, unions they're they're big business, like they're, they're they're greedy, but they're like they're old business. They're bad. This is the bad old way of doing things. They're corrupt white men right. and sort of sexual harassers that will make you work alongside your. Uh, harasser or abusers in some cases, which I thought was a, a particularly interesting example, given that like there was no mention of what to do or what would happen if your abuse, abuser or harasser happens to be your boss or supervisor. And it's just like, yeah. if you go against them, they'll come <laughs> after you. And that like the union is that they're, they're, they're trying to organize, it goes against our values of, you know, of being a yeah. vegan company. I, I thought that was interesting. Like, um, 
why are you being aggressive? Because it made me think of, if you remember the uh, proto-unionization efforts in the Amazon warehouse in Alabama, there was a similar thing, not like directly calling him aggressive, but, you know, once the once the facade of like, this is a progressive company, we're going to hear everyone out, that even Amazon kind of does now, uh, mm. it will, they'll use anything they can get. And especially I've noticed, like, if a guy driving a unionization effort is a black man, it will be like, they'll just sort of immediately default to like, this guy's scary and aggressive, which is kind of what Amazon <laughs> did. And like, fits like, you know, these places will use whatever they have. But yeah, I did. I did find that pretty interesting here. There, there, there are two things going on that I think were interesting. One is there was no doubt in my mind that the, management was trying to provoke those pro-union voices to speak up in these meetings and so that they would be depicted as irrational, as angry, uh, and that would sort of be reflected on to their campaign. Uh, and, and I think that worked to an extent, uh, that, that they, they created this, this hostile situation uh, that's why he says, why are you being hostile, right? Uh, they created this situation to depict uh, the particular side of this vote as, as you know, uh, uh, not, not reflective of, of, of good civil behavior. So uh, once again, it's like building this tension and blaming the union for it. And the only way the tension gets relieved is if you vote out the union. So that's number one. Number two, the, 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 the remarkable lengths to which identity politics came into play in this, uh, I, I, I thought was really, really interesting. And obviously this is a bit specific to No Evil Foods, but, um, you know, talking about old white guys at the top of the organization, by the way, I mean, you know, the CEO is a white guy of No Evil Foods, but <laughs> yeah. um, uh, talk, talking about all these uh, incidents of, uh, you know, random sort of cherry picking incidents of sexual harassment, of anti LGBT comments. They were, they were singled out saying, this is, this is not what we stand for. Uh, uh, they, they mentioned, they mentioned over and over again, those people from Tar Heel, uh, which uh, they're, they're talking about the union as people from Tar Heel. Tar Heel is a city in North Carolina that houses the largest pig processing plant in the world at Smithfield Foods. And that's a unionized plant. And they were actually kind of saying, like, I don't want to be part of a union that represents meat. Like, we're, we're a vegan company. And uh, there was even an intimation that the union would try to sabotage a vegan company to allow their meat processors to continue uh, and, and, and knock out the competition, which is absolutely insane uh, if you think about it for two seconds like uh, this that that a union would work this hard to bring a company into the fold only to destroy it and sabotage it, it makes no sense at all um, uh, so but there was just very much this effort to separate no evil foods in the union on identity politics grounds uh, and and it, I, at one point, Wolianski, the CEO, says it. He says, uh, I, I, I think these points are being made to draw a contrast between the culture we're trying to build at No Evil Foods and the culture that is built around unions. I mean, 
I guess just to, like to, to wrap things up here, I mean, you quote a former Teamster organizer in the piece, speaking of like uh, the, the management playbook, and uh, he says quite simply, you have to create this miserable workplace and then you provide the relief at the end. This is the psychological, physical, economic manipulation system, manipulative system, and that all the parts work together. I mean, so uh, to that end, to get back to like sort of what I asked at the beginning, yeah. like, you know, you, you, you listen to these recordings, you, you, you hear the tactics and, you know, they, they seem ludicrous to us and probably most of the people li listening, but it keeps working. I mean, the vote failed and it failed by, you know, a yeah. significant margin. So what is it that like, what is it that management gets that we don't and what are, uh, union organizers uh, or like, you know, politicians or people like uh, invested in organizing shops like these, what are they failing to do or anticipate or understand about like the, the workers that they're seeking to help? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is that these, these meetings aren't usually broadcast in this, in this way. The, the, the tactics are sort of always brand new to the organizers who are, are trying to deal with them. Uh, I mean, that's not necessarily the case of, of the unions, but of the workers who are actually doing the work on the ground, uh, who are trying to organize their workplaces, they're, they, they don't have a playbook necessarily for this. And so I think that's one important reason why I wanted to do this piece is, is uh, to just lay out these tactics so that they can be anticipated. Uh, the second thing is, you know, I mean... We talked about this before. I think people just don't have a lot of experience with unions. Uh, our labor laws are such that it gives the management a much bigger megaphone. Uh, they can make these meetings mandatory. They can uh, uh, force people to listen for hours and hours on end. They can, they can force, I mean, this was time at work that was spent rather than producing to go into this uh, uh, conference room and listen for an hour, that almost is a depiction of how important this is. Like we're willing to, to waste time. We're willing to not have you work to tell you about this. And it, 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 that almost in and of itself shows how important it is to management and, and, and shows to the workers, wow, they, they really mean business if they're, they're taking hours and hours off our time to tell us to not do this. Um, so uh, there, there's, I mean, the big problem is that our labor laws uh, allow this to go sort of unfettered. Uh, any kind of thing that 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 uh, a workplace does, I mean, we're seeing in the Amazon case that they might have to rerun the union vote uh, in in Bessemer, Alabama, uh, and and that's very rare that uh, there would be any kind of accountability for, for union-busting tactics and retaliatory tactics and what have you. Uh, most of it is, is more like what happens at No Evil Foods, that they are allowed to set the, the narrative for the, the workers. And, uh, you know, whatever happens in the aftermath is, is, is not going to be sanctioned in any meaningful way. I mean, just, I guess I just finally real quick, like, I mean, yes, like, I mean, there are there is a political solu like solution to this. But like, would the PRO Act, like as currently written, were it to be passed, would it um, would it stop things like these captive audience meetings? Like, you know, what would be the effect of it, uh, of the PRO Act passing and in being yeah. in being a solution to the problems outlined and that we just talked about? I would have to check, but I don't believe that the PRO Act covers captive audience meetings specifically. 
However, the National Labor Relations Board probably has some authorities where they can say these meetings don't have to be mandatory. Um, it would take a ruling from that entity to, uh, to get that done. Uh, the PRO Act certainly would stop retaliation. Uh, it would impose much higher fines because some of these fines are seen as the cost of doing business. Um, it would, uh, there's certainly a lot in the PRO Act that would make it easier to organize workplaces. And that's essentially what we need because we have had since the Taft-Hartley Act, uh, you know, what was that? That was uh, 70 years ago. And, and there hasn't really been a change in the trajectory uh, in labor law uh, that has improved the situation, basically, uh, from, from that point. So uh, the PRO Act would represent the first, kind of the first pushback in seven decades to this, this idea of an ever-devolving set of labor regulations. So it's definitely very important. I mean, I don't, uh, there, there's talk that in this reconciliation bill around infrastructure that they're going to try to put parts of the PRO Act in there. I, I, I'm fascinated to see how they're going to try to actually do that. Um, but uh, we definitely need something to change in that realm. But I think in, in the absence of that, uh, workers who are looking to organize their workplace need to know what they're up against. And they need to get out in front of the issue very early to inform everyone in a workplace that here's what's coming Here's what's going to happen. Here's what management's going to say. Here's, uh, here's the way that we can think about this that uh, uh, shows that management isn't really playing fair and they, 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 they aren't telling you the whole story. Uh, I think credible and persistent communication is the answer. And, and that's what we've seen in workplaces that have been organized over the last couple decades it's taken years of that educational effort to get workers comfortable with it. David Dan, thank you for joining us. The article is up at the American Prospect. We will link to it in the show description. Thanks a lot, Dave. Thank you, Dave. All right. Thanks a lot. Uh, guys, I have a, a question of something I might have missed in, in the post. Has Steven Crowder said what's wrong with him at any point? I have no idea. I have no idea. Uh, if he has, I don't know. Somebody did some somebody did some investigation and they they think that it's a elective procedure to correct a sunken chest, which would be so very wait, he's funny. He's getting cosmetic surgery to have like a like Oh god! I mean, I mean, I, I buy That's that. That's one I mean, of the things exactly I saw, but I don't know. That would die getting it's like like Kanye West's mom or something. I, I mean, Molly and I were just talking about this. Is that that's what makes the whole thing seem like a bit? Is that he's constantly posting these stories about his like his body dying, and I'm, but never says what it is for, and that makes the whole thing into a bit. He might just be trying to get sympathy and attention. Oh, I'm I mean, dying. Oh, send prayers. I mean, obviously, we're all we're all pray, we're all praying for that outcome. I, th- I think you're right. I think he may be putting his thumb on the scale a little bit um, to just get people to wish he was dead and get sympathy from people. But you know, you never know. I mean, he is in the hospital all the time. All right, I'm recording. Okay, we're we talking about uh, Stephen Crowder. Yeah, we're talking about Crowder. Yeah, he's um, just the screenshot of him like on the ventilator, and then uh, <laughs> listen on. I'll uh, listen on uh, Spotify. <laughs> podcast 
listen to my death rattle available on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever wherever podcasts are found. He is he is a swagger jacker. Like this is he's literally doing what like makes Bolsonaro a star. But he doesn't like Bolsonaro what makes it cool when Bolsonaro does it is like he has tubes coming out of every part of his body and he just gives like a fucking stupid finger guns thing. <laughs> and it's like it's kind of like he's so used to being disgustingly sick and infirm that it's like kind of cool. But Steven Crowder like wants you to believe he's like fighting for his life, but it's all good. And I don't know. It just doesn't, it doesn't have the same like uh, quality of Bolsonaro. No. Yeah. He's well, for one thing, he doesn't look like he's having a great time. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Bolsonaro. <laughs> yeah. He's always, he's got tubes in him. They're hoovering sh- shit out of his mouth yeah and he's just got two thumbs up and he's smiling like an idiot and that is what, that's the, the charisma that he's got whereas fucking crowder he looks like a dog in one of those uh those fucking commercials that's got sarah mclaughlin playing yeah no he's like they're gonna fucking put him down any minute his yeah. wife like his wife is in the other room and she's like trying to remember what his favorite meal is that she could put in his bowl before they fucking pull the plug <laughs> No one's like no one's pulling the plug on Bolsonaro. That's even though they no. like probably should. It's like he's certainly not <laughs> getting better, but like he's like a beloved like fat dog with health problems. Yeah, to Bo- that Bolsonaro. Country. You know, like it, it's like every, all of his supporters. It's like you know when you go to someone's house and they have like a disgusting dog with like oily fur who's coughing everywhere, but like you know he's got like he's a dog. He's got some he's swag. part of the family. He's part That's of the family. That's Bolsonaro, and it's like I was thinking about that like. Groiper account that like it started to like trigger the Brazilian libs and like international Brazil watchers and now it's just like every post is like hey friends we need prayers for Bolso in the hospital <laughs> like a, two times a week every week for like three years and you know it, it has become part of his image and I don't think Steven Crowder has like the there's too much pain in his eyes to do this yeah know? Whereas, like, you know, Bolsonaro, no matter what shape he's in, I mean, like, he, he's loving it. He's loving life. I mean, a, like, an ostrich just chased him down a flight of stairs. He just washed his hands in a water fountain. Um, but, yeah, it's thumbs up all the yeah, way. He, he's getting swallowed whole by a hippo and his head's <laughs> popping out the asshole. And he's giving <laughs> stupid fucking finger guns. He's an awesome guy, you know. He's a, destroying the world's, like, most important biome. But he's an awesome guy. <laughs> <laughs> Praise up for Captain uh, Captain Jair. Yeah. Oh, uh, hey, all my friends come together to. We're seeing. We're all seeing if we're, our stools are a match for Captain Bolso. <laughs> you can give him a good stool transplant for the fecal yeah. transplant that we've and got. I, I mean, and I think Crowder to a certain degree is is leaning into this uh, to just sort of like provoke people into like wishing him dead or just like really really hoping that uh, things will go south. Um, I mean, to that end, I'm quite successful. I mean, mission accomplished, Stephen. Yeah, I mean, I Stephen Crowder is, he somehow like kind of made a career out of this. And I never really expected him to because he, there's always something like off about him. Like there's something, I guess there's something off with like anyone in conservative or really any type of media. But especially, he can't even do the conceit he's working with because I've seen a lot of Crowder videos where it's like, you know, the premise is he's going around and showing how like libtarded people are. But the thing he'll like, he'll just get a bunch of people and they'll say something like kind of reasonable about like gun control or, you know, vaccination. 
and they, he won't really like get a rise out of them, so he has to cut away. Do you remember in Religious when Bill Maher got owned by the guy in the yes, by the, by the Orlando uh, religious yeah. theme park where he explained the concept of the triune god, like yeah. water, ice, and uh, so they, like, uh, sorry, uh, like the three states of water. So they had to cut back to Bill Maher in the van, being like, "Well, it seemed like that guy had a good point, but he's stupid." <laughs> and that's every Steven Crowder video, but he also uh, has like. There's something severely like unnerving about him. Like I think Greg Gutfeld said that he went to a meet Crowder in a bar once and Crowder was sitting like crisscross applesauce on the ground drinking milk. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know. Even, I, don't I don't know. There's just another, there's something, another... something like he was either like breastfed like too long or like not enough. I don't know. Something I don't know if like, you guys have noticed up with uh, him. this other Crowder affectation, but um, when he's when he's not in the hospital getting his uh, <laughs> Getting an arm replacement or something. <laughs> getting his his, uh, yeah, his hey, ribs removed. Hey, Stephen, we have to put a quaddo on you so you'll <laughs> live another five years. Okay. It's a, please, if you have a quaddo, please get tested to see if you're compatible to donate it to Stephen yeah. Crowder. It's the only thing that will keep him alive. Open your mind. No, I when he was when he when he just record like when he's not doing like. Uh, uh, boo! I'm I'm gonna dress as a girl and see if men will want to fuck me. Like and he's not doing <laughs> social experiment pranks like that. Um, like and he's just recording in his studio with like you know the like the podcast boys and like he's got a studio set up and the, they're taking call ins and they're doing a live stream. Um, like he's recording at a desk like like behind a mic, but he's wearing a like a, like a pistol in a shoulder holster like at at the studio on mic, which I thought was pretty cool. You never know when you're gonna get run up on. That, I mean, no lacking. He would get run up on by like the cavity gang. Like, he's like those are his ops. His ops are like, like stuff like that, like mild health problems that children face that incapacitate him for years at a time. But I, I, so yeah, it's very clear he's doing a thing where he like wants to, when they allow him to like sit upright ever again, he wants to do a video where it's like, look at all these tolerant people who like wish me death, which isn't really interesting yeah. or anything anymore like that's i think that's like something you could do that was like five years ago maybe people would give a shit but i mean for me i've been retweeting all of his health announcements i'm not like wishing him death you know directly but i am more like the thing with me isn't like oh this is like karmic because like he did he did this like awful video where he has like some woman kneeling his neck to show that Derek chauvin is innocent and it's pretty interesting that he did that and now has these all these health problems. But um, it's more like, what's wrong with you? Like, how are you like a outwardly healthy appearing, like 30-something-year-old man, A, with kids? And uh, just imagine if your dad was making all these hospital posts. Imagine if your dad, not disabled or anything his entire instagram video his entire instagram grid is fucking hospital bed selfies for the past two months b what did you do because again we do think this is his fault right like we do yes. kind of think like he did something stupid we don't know what it is i'd like to find out but i am interested in that he got parvo from fucking dogs <laughs> yeah he got parvo from fucking dogs he did a video where it's like how would Black Lives Matter respond if I like sucked a dog's dick through a glory hole <laughs> while wearing a dress? Oh, what? If, well, yeah. What if? How would Black Lives Matter react if um, I hypnotized myself into being a fertile and breedable schoolgirl at their rally? <laughs> I don't know, Steve. 
I don't know. How would they? Uh, how would feminists react if I got entirely elective, sur- like <laughs> entirely elective male pectoral enhancement surgery that um, led to a staph, led to a super bacteria infection that is ravaging my yeah. immune system? How would? Oh yeah. How would a how would a black church react if I was totally naked because all my clothes are in the dryer and I go to get them out and I'm stuck in the dryer? <laughs> <laughs> I think they would maybe th- rethink a few. Things. And then my stepson comes <laughs> yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, everyone's really tolerant until the pizza guy comes, and I have no way to pay for it except for one way. <laughs> well, uh, as long as we're talking about um, grotesques and ops, I, I suppose like I, we we got to bring up uh, Andrew Cuomo. He's doing great. He's doing great. <laughs> He's just doing uh, it. Uh, he, uh, my sister said something very funny. She's been on fire about this shit. She's always really funny, but she said that Cuomo's defense was like at that press conference, and he's like, "I've I've kissed BIPOC people, I've kissed even disgusting old people." Yeah, I, those who are not aware, it's like uh, like the like a, like a state investigator is like issued their report looking into like you know allegations of uh, sexual harassment, intimidation in the governor's office, and it was a. Uh, like a, a scathing and very damning indictment of Cuomo, uh, such that like basically every politician in New York and Joe Biden himself have said that he should resign. Cuomo is yet to do that. And like I said, I will believe it when I see it, because, I mean, he is such a tyrant in his personality that like, I, you know, I could I could easily see him just like just toughing this one out or not going anywhere. But- Cuomo is going to get kicked out of the governor's mansion and we're going to actually like have to arrest him on Third Amendment charges. <laughs> Like he's gonna like ordered. come to my apartment and be like, "This is the new thing," and then he's gonna start hugging me and shit. I'm a New Yorker. I bet I could pick you. I bet I could crack you back really well. I'm Felix Biederman. I'm Will Menica. <laughs> I'm Matt Chrisman. I'm a New Yorker. I'm living in their houses now. I don't go places I'm not invited. This um, thing, this thing is so interesting to me. Like the Cuomo slow crumble has been so interesting to me because I remember, you know, we all remember a year ago when. Every dumb dumb like Jennifer Rubin was like, I just I I feel like a warm blankie's over me when he talks, and it's like uh, this is just a wide liberal love fest over Cuomo, and his approval ratings in this state in New York were very high. Oh yeah, and there was a part of me that thought maybe it's kind of hollow. I don't know. I don't know though because you always get your heart broken in this country. People will like the worst people. But, you know, there's thing in the back of my mind, like, I don't know. I don't know. How long can this last? And if you, I don't know if you guys remember, but the thing that kicked this all off is Cuomo did his usual thing that he does to every politician that works on every politician to this point of making like a mafia guy phone call of being like, don't fuck with me. Do you know who I am? And he did it to the wrong guy. He did it to Ron Kim. And Ron Kim, the first politician in New York, I guess, who got called by Cuomo and wasn't a complete pussy, was like, okay, well, worst case scenario, I just, I lose the next election and I won't be in the legislature anymore, but that's what, I'm not going to let this guy talk to me like this. And basically, like, did a press conference about how lame Cuomo is. And then suddenly he lost, like, 30% of his support. Like, man, that is all it takes sometimes. And that's when, that's when it turned out he's been uh, picking women up by their waist and shit. Well, you know, I mean, I, that's when they they started feeling like, OK, now I can come out with this because before it's a very daunting task to do it to a guy who has like, you know, 68 percent approval within his own state. But that's sort of like it got the ball rolling 
on people being able to come out against him. But it is, man, sometimes it really just does take one guy, you know, at well, the start. I, uh, the, the, the really exquisite part of um, where Cuomo's at right now is that, of course, his lawyer released an 85-page document in response to this state investigation that is basically 85 pages of photos of Andrew Cuomo kissing his father on the mouth. Yeah, and then, oh, but also photos of like other, like George W. Bush, yeah, like, kissing. It's like, do you think the lawyer has like, he, oh yeah, I have like my specific like kink is sixty-five-year-old men kissing older people on the mouth. Let me just go to my flash drive where I keep <laughs> all these pictures. I mean, and like you know, he's saying that like, look, I'm 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 an Italian guy. Like this is the way we relate to people. I mean. <laughs> One of the, I mean, one of the things is that he would uh, he would say "Ciao, Bella" to his to the women who worked for him. He would say "Ciao, Bella," and he was just like, "That's just how Italians say good morning." I mean, it's just like I'm not, I'm not. This is nothing, nothing weird about it. This is normal for me. I'm handsy with people. I talk with my hands. I touch them. I embrace them. And you know what? I mean, Joe Biden had this exact same problem. I mean, it went, I mean, like, it went nowhere with him, but, like, I mean, all, like, all those photos of him, like, you know, uh, uh, giving shoulder massages to people he takes photos with. So, I mean, I, I, w- I would think that, you know, quote, I mean, Biden would have a little bit more sympathy for a fellow, a fellow hands talker, a fellow sort of old school guy who, you know, <laughs> as Uncle Junior says, when a, when a Zephyr goes through his mind, he can't just express to a beautiful woman how he feels. Well, I think that there's a different, like they're doing literally the same thing. I think the difference with Joe, right, is when Andrew does it, there is like a skeevy, like pathetic yeah. loneliness to it. Like he's doing the back rubs and shit. And then he's like, I'm very lonely. No one has shared my bed in over a year. Can you come? He like tries. He tries to fuck women like there. he's Dracula. <laughs> you, you're you're the one I want. And but Joe is just like Joe is just floating around, being like referencing a shampoo commercial that was only on the radio fifty years ago, smelling of fucking woman's hair. And it's, he's just like coming and going, take it or leave it. He doesn't really want to fuck these women. It doesn't seem like. And it's like gross. And it's they're both creepy old guys. But Cuomo is so like there's just such a slimy desperation in it. I yeah. think. Absolutely. There's uh, obviously there's tons of footage of uh, Biden being a weapons grade creep, but there's nothing that I've ever seen that compares to that footage of Cuomo with the sausage. Yeah. yeah. Going, yeah. eat the sausage. There's too much sausage in that picture. Eat Cuomo the sausage. Like if, you, if Captain Queeg really wanted to get pussy. <laughs> That's what he's yes. doing, dude. Yes. He's such a freak. Yes. He's such a freak. Yeah. Yeah, absolute mutant. Yeah, yeah. Absolute is, fucking it's mutant. Like, he thinks he's Dracula. I'm so upset. I'm so obsessed with the idea. Like, it's just this, like, man, you're like a 23 year old. You just graduated from, like, State University of Purchase in public policy. You're like, damn, I can't. I'm working for the governor. Wow. I'm going to put on a smart blouse and like this is going to be a fast-paced office environment it's going to be like my favorite show damages or fucking whatever <laughs> and then just this like you know just this guy who his face looks like a interconnected series of half pipes wearing a blankie <laughs> just like floats over to you you don't even see his feet moving on the ground he's like levitating from just his horny menace and he's like 
would you like to darken my bed chamber? <laughs> it's like, oh. it's like, yeah, you're an, you're an, you're an ambitious young woman. Uh, like, yeah. you know, you just graduated. You, you, you want to work in politics. And then the governor of New York purchases the Carfax Abbey estate next to your family home. <laughs> yeah. He is, man, it, it's like, do you think he made a conscious decision when he started getting older where he's like, I'm going to start looking like Dracula? And behaving like <laughs> it's like it's like the same thing, you know, like sometimes when people are like they get older and their metabolism slows down and they're like, OK, I have to become like an epic fat guy. I have to wear D.C. skate shoes and like do sauce eating challenges. <laughs> like, I think if you're like, you know, you 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 look like Cuomo, you're like, I'm a vampire. I mean, I, I think I, th- I think it's a look that I think it's a look and a style that should be uh, cultivated by more people, quite frankly. I'm I mean, going to do it. Being I'm gonna, Dracula, I'm being, like being a Dracula is not about being goth. I mean, people no. think, oh, I just put on wear black clothes and put on some eyeliner. That's not that's not what being a Dracula is about. Being a being Dracula, Dracula is about being a really old guy trying to pick up young women and and failing literally miserably. killing tons of old people. <laughs> He's yes. doing everything. He's doing all the Dracula shit. Oh, God. Um, God, I mean, God, it's weird though. I mean, like, do you think, do you think he's going to be, I mean, like, cause if he doesn't resign, it does seem like he'll get, he'll be impeached. It's looking that way. He may, like, it's, it's just, I mean, maybe, I mean, who knows? Like, are they going to, are they going to really like push on that is the question. Cause you know, the big thing happens. Everyone wants your statement. You put one out there and you just sort of assume that he'll take the hint, but it really is up to him to yeah. make them go. That's what he did last that. time. I mean, there were a lot of people calling him on to resign last time. This was a cycle, and a like this guy. I think we've learned this guy can't take this. <laughs> like this is this guy. Women have broken out the "I'm washing my hair that night" excuse for the first time since 1993 with this guy. He's not taking any fucking hints, but he also like sort of correctly assessed, okay, if I just sort of dig my heels in, there's no like real will to have to do this whole thing. I don't know. Biden being like, no, you have to resign. That's a different, different calculus here, but I could see him just doing the same thing again. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I will not be surprised. I mean, if he's, especially if he figures that he's can't run for president now, and this is where he's topped Man. out. Then why would he want to leave? He that when he's not governor anymore, then who is he? Just some asshole? Some fucking just lobbyist? A year ago, Boring. just a year ago, people were like, "God damn it, he's going to be president one day." And he one hundred percent thought, "Yep, yeah, guaranteed." I thought two thousand eight. I will poison Joe Biden with ricin at a White House dinner, and I will be fucking president. I thought there was a possibility they were going to swap him out at the convention because he was like the model of like leadership during COVID. As opposed yeah. to Trump because of his PowerPoint presentations. Oh, well, he would have won Florida. Like the amount of old people he would have killed once he got down there. <laughs> Those are all Trump's voters. Like he would have, man, he would have landslide. Just, First Democrat I, to win Florida in a long time. Yeah, I can't he would have owned it. I can't get the Dracula thing out of my head because like he literally has been like siphoning off the life, literally the lives of like thousands of the elderly. Who he's, yep. who he's who he's like boarded up in his mausoleums that are owned by a friend of his, and then yeah, it's just like he's taking all that energy, and then he's just like 
<laughs> he's floating outside Jennifer Rubin's window. Going, <laughs> You're the one I want, Jennifer. <laughs> Do you uh, want to meet the boyfriend? Has anyone interviewed the boyfriend? Uh, I, I really want to. Uh, Are they still around? Uh, Do they disappear somewhere? I got. I mean, I just. Is, I, is the boyfriend was the boyfriend dating the Cuomo daughter? Who's like, man? You know, there was a family meeting where Cuomo was like, you have to take some heat off me, McClinda, or whatever the fuck your name is. And she's like, okay. And then she like does a press release. It's like, I am LGBT. I'm a sapiosexual. <laughs> like, what? What's up? But no, uh, yeah. Uh, the, I, was she was she dating the boyfriend? Yeah, no. I mean, like the boyfriend in this is like he's like uh, Keanu Reeves. He's he's fucking uh, Mina Harker's fiance. <laughs> Goes to the fucking castle yeah. and never comes home. <laughs> yeah, Did Cuomo turned him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, he's a wraith now. Oh yeah. uh, God, just I—I I know people just like keep sharing it, but every time I see the Jennifer Rubin tweet, I think it's like possibly my favorite tweet of all time. It's oh like uh, the, the, the girls finish their spaghetti and meatballs, and the boyfriend in quotation marks looks nice too. Because I like the in quotation. She's like she is she she's like entreating or hoping Andrew Cuomo will reply to like uh, explicate the nature of this guy's relationship to the family. I Lady, what is? Oh, <laughs> What is in your know, brain? The vibe of that post was like that she like found a halfway creaked window in that living room and poked her fucking stupid head in. That was like amazing. Her, all her replies are great. Like, I love her vibe. I love her vibe of we've talked about it a million times. But yes, her vibe of I took my dog's Vicodin. <laughs> now you're going to get some replies. But her replies to Cuomo had like, it was just like, that is the human quality of spiritual loneliness. What she I mean, said that, to that picture. Like, it looks like the girls ate their spaghetti and meatballs. Was she saying they're, like, stacked? <laughs> what are you saying? What the fuck are you talking about? He's saying about? That, the, that they're members of the clean play club. <laughs> that they're good girls who <laughs> yes. ate all of their food. They're very good I, daughters. You know I mean, goddammit. Have like, I told you guys what my dream is? No. I want to be, I'm flying to, like, Korea or something. Like, a really long flight. Um, I upgrade to business class because it's like, hey, you know, whatever. Uh, you, you know, you never know what networking connections you can make. I'm waiting for my seatmate. Boom, it's Jennifer Rubin. And she's given us both enough Adderall to talk to each other for the full 18 hours. That's my dream. That's what I want to happen to me. I mean, I'm like, I mean, going for the, the the Dracula thing. I mean, like every Dracula needs a Renfield, and like Jennifer Rubin is volunteered for that for Cuomo. Oh, you know? God! And but, like, but you're right. Like, like the content of both of the, both the post she was replying to and the original post itself, and just his whole vibe, both of them, is just such this, such a such a such a frightening loneliness. <laughs> It's sad, man. It's it's it's, it it's, it's very grim. It, it's like Cuomo was literally like. Not even his friends, but someone who is like, you know, I hey, I'm the, the fucking undersecretary for buses or whatever the fuck. And he's like, I'm very lonely. <laughs> like, it was like, did you ever read those Tiger Woods cheating texts that were awesome, yeah. by the way? But like how that's it would be like nine in the morning and he'd be like, do you like golden showers? <laughs> These And they had such a like good. There's something very good natured about them. Like I really they made me like him more. And I don't even like golf, but like. Cuomo kind of has the opposite because, yeah, it's like people are getting into the office, blah, blah, blah. He, like, pulls you aside. You know, you're also an evil New York politics demon. 
because here you, Cuomo thinks he can talk to you like a friend, like the guy he said this to, where he's. But you, th- you think he's? Oh, are we going to do some type of like political retaliation against like Ron Kim? Are we going to do this or that? Or you know, what awful thing are we going to do? No, I'm very lonely. <laughs> like it just, man, man, dude. And if you're if you're the governor, and you can't like people loved him at this time. You're the governor, and you can't find like a good looking woman who loves your same stupid shit. To like consensually date you, like Steven Crowder in the hospital. That is your fault. I'm sorry. It's your fault. You're lonely, man. Well, the uh, I, I have been enjoying the uh, the Van Helsing in this situation is of course Mayor Bill De Bungler who has yes despised Cuomo for years now. They have hated My each other, man. and Cuomo has taken every opportunity to just t- stick the knife and turn it into De Blasio, fucking him over at just about every conceivable uh especially during covid or well blaming like most of new york's covid problems on (laughs) build the bungler and now now that the shoe is on the other foot and the stake is ready to be driven into this creature uh the bungler is taking every opportunity to just be like by not resigning (laughs) cuomo is is hampering new york state's covid relief uh abilities no i mean okay look that like the death rate in New York State is like, yeah, hate to brag about these things we're owning, and it's all because of the bungalow. Or at least it's not because of Cuomo. <laughs> and uh certainly like the bungalow should take a victory lap right now. Like, dude, for all the big states, New York's fucking owning, just as far as like hospitalizations, deaths, uh, you know, beating the Trump virus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he should be, people should realize he's a hero. He's the greatest elected official of my lifetime. <laughs> and, and the most dripped out. The most dripped out. He was, he's that woman's, he wasn't looking at that woman's tits when he was wearing the, like, John Lennon no. polarized glasses. Yeah. They were just, she was like, I want you to see these, Bill. And he was like, okay. He's the opposite of Cuomo. He's like, he's having the time of his life. It makes me very happy. No, Bill the Bungler would not last a day as a Dracula. He wouldn't like it. It's, it's he's not. not right that's not his personality. He's a Frankenstein. He likes vibing outside in <laughs> a Hawaiian the shirt. Yeah, he's a Frank. He's a Frankenstein. He's just yes. like yeah, bumbling around, and he has a message of love. You're the right. Yeah. Like Frankenstein, it. he was persecuted by by idiot townsfolk, i.e., the people of New York City. Yeah, yeah. No, for you. chasing him around with pitchforks <laughs> yeah. and torches when he's just trying to buy. Yeah, he did, he didn't to kill get... that girl. He was trying to help. Her. Yeah, the groundhog. The groundhog's the girl. Yes, yes. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Uh, we just gotta figure out who 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 the mummy is and the wolfman, and we'll we'll have a comprehensive. Sort oh, I know. Of I think universal I, horror. Uh, we know who the mummy is. It's Joe. <laughs> Joe's <laughs> the fucking mummy. <laughs> yeah, wolfman. Um, I guess Ralph Northam like was known to transform physically in a way that shocked people. Uh, maybe that's like that's the like that's the thing he was going to say at the press conference that it was beyond his control and it like it happened under certain lunar conditions and his wife was like no don't tell people that <laughs> I'm just like uh, in, in New York State politics though oh in New York State okay yeah yeah I mean J- Joe Biden is the mummy is uh, yeah, yeah, yeah that that checks out. 
But I mean, I don't know. Well, uh, you know, uh, Curtis Sliwa. I don't know how he how he fits in here. Um, but yeah, there, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of Wolfman. There's a lot of there's a lot of monsters out there. And what is it, what's Eric Adams? I think he's more of like a like a more in the Van Helsing vein. Yeah, uh, he's uh, a sort of Helsing. A, sort of a wacko doctor who's a. <laughs> Yeah, he's a crank. <laughs> he's a fucking yeah, he's, crank. Yeah. yeah, he's like he's like any problem you have. He's like, have you tried Eye of Newt? Eric, shut up. That's what you say about everything. Uh, he keeps a pocket mirror with him everywhere he goes, and he just sticks it in people's faces to see if there's a reflection. Yeah. Yeah. He like thinks he can cure vampirism through vegan diets. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best medicine. Thank you. Here's the... <laughs> no, sorry. I mean, I was going against the Van Helsing thing, but I'm just I like, uh, 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 this is the dirt I sleep in every night. It's uh, it's dirt from Brooklyn, but I've carried it across the Hudson River to New Jersey. So the coffin I sleep in every night is technically New York City. <laughs> I mean, he could be a vampire. I don't know. He's in the sun a lot. He's, yeah. I don't know. It's hard hey, to Walker? figure out. Sort of a blade he situation. Be, he's blade. Sort of a blade situation. There we there go. We go. If he's if he's, he's blade. blade, the nice thing is like he's hiding it. But then it's like if you just asked him, he'd be like, "Yes." He'd be like, "Finally, I can tell the truth." He would just tell you. You know, he's an honest guy, whether he like wants to be or not. Okay, Eric Adams is blade, which would make Curtis Sliwa his whistler, the Chris Christopherson character. Yes. Who's sort of the, the grizzled yes. type who's like, you know, like uh, fixes his cars and gives him anti, anti-vampire weapons and things of that nature. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's, I like, yeah. I like how, no, that's, that's, or maybe it's the bungalow because the bungalow did kind of like pass the reins onto him, you know? He was like, hey, I've been hunting this yeah, vampire but- for eight years, but you, you know, it's your job now, Eric. Because yeah, this guy's you know, never fucking setting, stepping down. Uh, but, you know, like, I mean, it, it's an unlikely alliance because, you know, Whistler had his family killed by vampires. Yeah. And, and, you know, he wants to only to kill vampires. But, you know, uh, Blade is, is, is basically is a vampire, but he's just a vampire that kills vampires. Whereas, you know, the Guardian Angels are they're dedicated to fighting crime. And, you know, like they're, they're making an unlikely uh, alliance by, with a Democratic mayoral nominee by running against him in, in the election. Yes. <laughs> OK, done. Well, Close the book on that. That is yeah. uh, New York State politics as uh, defined by uh, various uh, various ghouls and monsters. Dude, I mean, they, talk they just... about the vampire castle. <laughs> That's this state, and I'm never leaving. I love it. <laughs> uh, there's only one thing left to do, gentlemen, and that is the mash. Yeah, we should close out with the monster mash. Drop mm-hmm. that mash. All right, cheers, guys. Cheers. My eyes beheld an eerie sight, for my monster from his slab began to rise. And suddenly, to my surprise, he did the mash. He did the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. He did the mash. It caught on in a flash. He did the mash. He did the monster mash. From my laboratory in the castle east to the master. Vampire's peace. The ghouls all 